Welcome to the Laws of Wellness, brought to you by Zaparis Lawyers. Here are your hosts, Dr. Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce. Hello and welcome to the Laws of Wellness, proudly brought to you by Zaparis Lawyers. Marcus Pierce here with you, and as always, I am joined by Australia's premier chiropractor, naturopath, and nutritionist. He is my brother from another mother. He is Dr. Damien Christoph. How are you, legend? Hello, Pierce. Good evening. Good afternoon to you. I'm excited to be recording this particular podcast today, um, talking all about gut health. This is absolutely crucial. It's one of those fascinating topics that seems to have crept up on a lot of people over the years because so many people um, have a gut health issue, but it hasn't liked this forever, has it? It's somewhat of a recent phenomenon. Well, I think if you cast your mind back, you know, 10 or 20, 30 years ago, like very little was understood except for a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and in and around that time, we started talking about things like leaky gut and all that. And, um, you know, like it, it's it's kind of expanded and we've grown and we understand so much more. So, you know, in today's podcast, we'll go through all of those. We'll go to the nuts and bolts. We'll get really deep. And I think everybody's going to enjoy a lot about learning in-depth, high-level knowledge of the gastrointestinal system. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to go uh, advanced on this. We're going not 101. I think we call it 201 in America, maybe 301. But we're going to talk uh, gluten sensitivity versus, say, gluten allergy. We're going to go the upper gut, the symptoms. We're going to talk the middle gut symptoms, the lower gut symptoms, how to know whether what you may be feeling in your body is an upper gut, middle gut, or lower gut problem. That allows you to have more clarity around where to go, what to do uh, in order to improve your health. And the reason why this is so important is because, Damo, we've been running events around health and wellness together for years. Uh, The ones we run in Australia, we say who here has a gut health issue and 95% of the room will put their uh, their hand up. And then when we go to, say, a little Greek island called Ikaria, you will say, do you have gut health issues on this island? And they will go, gut health what? What what are you even talking about? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Whilst, whilst this podcast is beaming around Australia, uh, it's important that we cover this topic because it's something that is incredibly relevant and prevalent for everyone today. So let's get stuck into it. Can you, first of all, define the difference between gluten sensitivity and a gluten allergy? Yeah, absolutely, PC. And I suppose let's, you know, let's start with um, understanding, I suppose, some of the common um diets that people go on um, and a very common one which many people you know kind of follow for fear or for concern that they've got an allergy or sensitivity to a particular protein is a gluten-free diet so a gluten sensitivity is where somebody might feel bloated or tired or challenged like they feel that there may be even sometimes their joints might actually inflame they might have you know sore joints or the asthma flares or potentially get itchy scalp or maybe even some behavioral disorders you know some people can feel foggy in their thought they can be depressed the thyroid gland can be affected by gluten and um and so there's so many different symptoms that people can be experiencing with a sensitivity to gluten so all of that was to do with the sensitivity, but not an allergy to gluten. So the difference between a sensitivity is that it might bring on some symptoms and an allergy is something that can be life-threatening. 
And so if we think about what is the life-threatening disease that's associated with gluten, it's celiac disease. And so we talk about a gluten allergy being celiac disease, and that's where the microvilli in the gut, which gives us this enormous span. So let's think about the small intestine, for example, which our, our um largest surface area of the whole of the body is inside the small intestine. The small intestine, if you were to take it out and you unraveled it and you stretched it out so that all of the microvilli, which are all the little bumps and weaves and uh, grooves that are in the small intestine, if you stretch that out, that would cover half of one tennis court. That's an adult small intestine. <laughs> half of one tennis court, including the doubles lines, that there is the size of your small intestine, like flat out, like real fruit flat out. Like if you did that and like <laughs> ironed it flat, it would be half of one tennis court. Now, the reason why that is the case is because when we digest our food, we need a large surface area to absorb the nutrients that we require. And what's really important about this is that every single piece of food that we chew, that we digest, that we break down, anything that's of any importance we want to absorb and anything that's not important or dangerous we want to get rid of. And mm -hmm. so that very thin membrane of one layer of skin cells, which is how thick our gastrointestinal system is, just one layer of skin cells. If you've ever been sunburned and you peel yourself, that's the thickness of your gastrointestinal system, right? So wow. we're talking super, super thin and super, super fragile. But at the same time, incredibly strong and so resilient um, you know, puts up with hydrochloric acid and lots of different enzymes and bile and bacteria and food and people eat chili. It's not as flimsy these... as Glad Wrap, is it? Well, it's amazing because it's probably as strong as Glad Wrap. And at the same time, it's what they call semi permeable. So it lets some stuff through and doesn't let other things through. So it's kind of like a pillow protector, like, yes. like a pillow protector that lets moisture. Yes you know, kind of out and nothing else gets in. You know, it's got, it's got an amazing ability to be, you know, selectively permeable. Um, so the allergy that we'll go back to the allergy of celiac disease, the microvilli react to gluten in a way in which it flattens out. And so a celiac sprue, which is the allergy that, that a gastrointestinal a gastroenterologist, gastroenterologist <laughs> looks for, the celiac sprue is a flattening of the microvilli. And that's significant because when you have flattening of the microvilli, you have decreased absorption of nutrition. And so this is where celiac disease becomes dangerous and problematic because you don't absorb calcium, you don't absorb other nutrients like iron. And so then as a result of not absorbing the nutrients that you require, you increase your risk of heart problems or heart damage, increase your risk of kidney damage and increase your risk of bowel damage and bone damage. And so there's a whole lot of stuff that can go wrong as a result of having celiac disease, but undiagnosed. And so there is a suggestion that maybe 80% of the population is is celiac. So there's, that, I mean, that's huge. They And they suggest that, you know, even though we've got a large percentage of the population already diagnosed, more than 80% of those people with celiac disease have no idea that they've mm. got celiac disease. And so mm -hmm. if you go down the medical route in this regard, if you absorb, if you, if you avoid eating gluten because either it's trendy or because you feel like you've got a sensitivity to it and you don't know if you've got celiac disease, but if you avoid gluten, 
then you may not be taking enough of a precaution against eating gluten because because the smallest amount of gluten is a problem with celiac disease. If you go gluten-free, gluten-free for the most part, people would say, if you do that, you may not actually know if you've got celiac disease. So what the dietitians say and what the medics say in this space is that if you suspect that maybe you've got an allergy or a sensitivity to gluten, it's worthwhile being tested to find out whether or not you've got celiac disease so that you can take all of the precautions against celiac disease, which would mean 100% exclusion of all gluten from your diet. Now, that becomes important primarily from a prevention perspective because if you take gluten out of your diet because you know that you just cannot have it, it's way better than taking gluten out of your diet just because you think it's a good idea um, and then every now and then you bring it back in. And that's the, the, the issue there is that you may not actually be taking enough of a precaution if you're actually allergic to it. That's the problem. So I want to backtrack just a touch because I feel like gluten as a term has become so uh, common, but a lot of people still don't know exactly what we're talking about. So just for the sake of simplicity and feel free to add in anything here. When we talk gluten, we're talking wheat, we're talking oats, we're talking spelt, we're talking rye, and we're talking barley. And that might also look like uh, there's many different types of wheat. So it could be durum wheat, could be semolina, spelt, farina, farro, iron corn. You could have any types of um, even malt, wheat, starch. There's a lot of different ways that it can be, I suppose, processed and then and then presented to um, the community. I, I, I say that because when you mention this to someone who's very new at this for, for one of better term, they go, so what am I going to eat? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I know. So that's a tricky thing. But it's interesting because when you break it down, gluten really exists in four grains, definitely. Um, and the grain in Australia that we say that you should also avoid is oats. Mm. And the reason why we say that is because oats and wheat are often stored in the same silos, not at the same time. Um, but there can be cross-contamination. So they don't necessarily, you know, swab for gluten particles when the wheat's been removed from the silo and then the oats go in it. So it's just, you know, there's there's the risk of cross-contamination. That risk of cross-contamination is enough for someone with an allergy to Mm. be a huge issue, a huge problem. Which is why we see that on on a lot of labels now, isn't it? It's like this has been processed in a facility that also processes Wheat products or nuts or whatever it might be. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's right because as people know, an allergy to nuts, the anaphylaxis allergy to nuts is fatal, you know, in many cases. So, even the slightest amount of that protein, gluten, hitting your tongue if you've got celiac disease is a big deal. It's a big Mm. deal. So, Mm. um, that's, that's the reason why we have concern over oats. Now, some oats that are brought in from other countries would claim to be. 100% 100% gluten-free and that they've had no um, cross-contamination and and, for the, and that could be totally right. But you need to have a parts per million test on the oats to be able to determine that there's zero, you know. And, and, oh, yeah, for breakfast, this became a whole lot more complicated. Yeah, right. And, but we, we, you know, when we had forage, that in order to, you know, claim gluten-free, we had to make sure that all of our, all of our grains were like, 
0.000 something parts per million of gluten or nil detected is what we had to be able to, you know, display and demonstrate. Wow. And and if a food product is brought in from overseas, they don't have to abide by the same rules. Mm. So let's say, for example, you get steel cut oats brought in from the US. Um, they could say there's no contamination, no exposure to gluten. Um and you just have to kind of go, okay, cool, no worries, because they're not tested in Australia for parts per million. So it's, there's a bit of trust involved there. Yeah, and then uh, and then when we when we come down to the next level of detail, it's like, okay, so what diet do I go on if I'm either gluten sensitive or I actually have a gluten allergy? And this is where the the modern trend of diet. So the main ones that you would say are focused on being gluten free is is just the, the quote-unquote gluten-free diet, but the paleo diet, the keto diet, the carnivore diet, uh, FODMAPs. Um, I think we talk about vegan a little bit sh- in, a, in a different conversation because there's plenty of vegans eating eating plenty of gluten. Um, but can you talk to the, the, the modern trend of diets and that, I suppose, focus on them being gluten-free and uh, not just your views on that, but I suppose the effectiveness of all of that as well? Yeah, for sure. So my feeling around this is that if we ate the same protein with every single meal, we would start to have a problem. So PC, if I said to you, um, what I want you to eat with every single meal is eggs. So I want you to have two eggs for breakfast. I want you to have two eggs for morning tea. I want you to have two eggs for lunch. I want you to have two eggs as your afternoon snack. And I want you to have two eggs uh, for dinner. And then when you have dessert, I want you to have two eggs. Now, you would start to feel a bit uneasy about that. It'd be the same thing as if I said, I want you to eat steak for breakfast, snacks, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner, and dessert. Six meals a day of steak. It would start to become a problem and your body would start to mount a response slash reaction to that particular protein that you're consuming. Mm. So, you know, if fish is the healthiest protein on the planet, you would mount a reaction to that if that's the only protein you got access to. Same thing for maybe even if we talk tofu, if we talk soy, um, if the only protein that you're getting exposed to is of the same nature, then at some point, because it's not you, because it's not yourself, your body will start to go, hang on a second, that's a protein that I'm not supposed to have that much of in my body. And so you'll start to mount reactions to that particular protein. So the overconsumption of it is a problem. So the reason I say that is because if you have wheat for breakfast or gluten with breakfast, gluten with your morning tea, gluten with your lunch, gluten with your afternoon tea, gluten with your dinner, and then gluten with your dessert, like if you're having loads of gluten, then at some point your body's going to mount a reaction to it. Now, that reaction could be as much as a sensitivity or it could just be a, you know, it could actually, in fact, be something more serious. So it might just be something, you know, relatively insignificant, like some bloating or some, you know, flatulence or burping or, you know, a bit of an itchy skin. Um, it might be that simple, but it could be like quite significant. So the point and the the cause of the significance will be determined by the genes. So if you've got one of three different celiac genes in your body, then you run the risk of becoming celiac. If you've got those genes, um, but you don't have full-blown celiac disease, you can still be non-celiac gluten sensitive. And that in itself is a diagnosis. And um, and then you could have no genes, but still have a reaction 
to gluten, and then that would just be a gluten sensitivity, right? So with clearly no celiac disease. So the point that I'm making there is that if you consume too much of one particular protein, it's like if your diet becomes so mono and so narrowly focused that you're only consuming the one type of protein all the time, that will become problematic. And so my point is variety here, and that's really you know the key takeaway. So if you look at all the different types of eating programs that you mentioned before, yeah, everything from paleo and keto and carnivore all the way through to the other extreme of vegan um, and vegetarian, um, that you're going to need to maintain some degree of variance and variation and flexibility in your diet so that you don't start to mount inappropriate reactions and responses to the food that you continue to consume. And it's not um, people going, oh, come on, this is a bit heavy-handed, but I'm just writing down here whilst we're talking – Cereal for breakfast, muffin at morning tea, sandwich at lunchtime, crackers and cheese at afternoon tea, pasta for dinner. That's gluten times five right there. Yeah. Um, Bit of cake for dessert. If you're having some cake for dessert. (laughs) (laughs) Or some lemon tart. Um, And we don't have a problem with any of those things. No. It's the combination day in, day out, every single meal. It's an assault on the gastrointestinal system, yes. even uh, something as amazing as the human body cannot absorb effortlessly um, year upon year upon year, which is probably why we're at the place where we are now. And we could talk about all types of things like how food was processed when we were kids and how our parents ate and our grandparents and so on and the modern food system. But we don't want to, we don't want to talk about that on this podcast. I think more specifically, I think it's important that we we talk about the symptoms that a lot of people are feeling. And, you know, you talk about the upper gut, the middle gut, and the lower gut. So can you talk to the upper gut, um, you know, which is, from my understanding, things like burping and indigestion and heartburn and reflux and um, sore throats and rising acid. Can you can you start at the mouth, I suppose, and as we consume cereal, muffin, sandwich, crackers, pasta, cake, um, how this cascade of continuity impacts us over time from a from a symptoms perspective yeah for sure pc so if we consider that the gastrointestinal system is one long tube that tube runs from our lips all the way down to our backside like to the hole at the bottom and that one long tube has the responsibility of protecting everything that's inside our body so it's like a second environment so with the environment out around us, you know, that we would talk about. So we talk about the air, our curtains, the seat, the carpet, all that sort of stuff, you know, what's inside our car or the fumes that we're breathing in or the country air that we're getting exposed to if you live in Mullum. So if you're like in those areas, like that's an that's an environment. The other environment is inside your body. And so the, so there's an environment on the other side of your gastrointestinal system, which mm. needs to be maintained to be pure and infection-free. It shouldn't have bacteria. It shouldn't have parasites. It shouldn't have virus and all that sort of stuff. And that's the part of your body that keeps you alive. The part of your body that protects your internal structures from all of that is the mucous membrane. And the part that we're talking about in this particular instance is the gastrointestinal system, which, as I said before, is only one layer of skin thick. Like it's like it's it's so thin, but it's tasked with keeping us alive. It is unbelievable. 
It's unbelievable. The other part that keeps us protected but also keeps us oxygenated is our mucous membranes in our reproduct in our respiratory system. And then the other part of our mucous membrane that's disconnected from our gastrointestinal system but is closely linked is our reproductive system. And the female reproductive system is more closely linked to the gastrointestinal system and it's closer just by nature of origin um, than what the male reproductive system is to the um, the exiting hole of the gastrointestinal system. So there is, you know, most certainly different bacteria and species that live in different areas, but um, they're all, they've all got their individual tasks and responsibilities. So if we talk about where things begin up in the mouth, the first part of digestion begins with chewing. And so when you chew, you obviously smash everything to pieces. Um, you're, the, 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 the word for that is called mastication and you're, literally ripping everything as small as you possibly can ideally and coating it with saliva because saliva contains enzymes in it that help to break down protein and carbohydrates. So really important that you coat your food with saliva as much as you possibly can. So some people would say, oh, don't drink water when you're having a meal. Um, and they kind of say that because they say that it waters down your secretions. And it kind of does, but at the same time, your body does require water to make sure that you've got adequate amounts of hydrochloric acid. So if you don't drink enough water and you haven't got enough zinc and you're not eating enough you know, fruit and vegetables, so you're not getting your vitamin C, you can't manufacture enough hydrochloric acid. And so you go from your mouth, which is you know coating all your food in saliva, down through your esophagus, which is covered in mucus, slides down through the... Um, esophageal sphincter into your stomach and then it goes into the stomach and it drops into a big pool of acid and that acid is at around about two ph ph of two so if you stick your finger in that it's ripping all the meat off the bone <laughs> if you you know if you if you if you, it, it does a pretty good job that in 90 minutes after the foods actually hit your gut, it's now been turned into an unrecognizable bolus of food that then passes through and it goes into your small intestine, through your pyloric sphincter, into the duodenum. And it's met then by acids, um, one of those acids being bile, and bile neutralizes the acid from the stomach. So we go we're in the middle gut now, yeah? Now we've well, gone well, from the upper gut to of, the middle gut? kind of like transitioning from the upper gut into the beginning of the middle gut. So that sphincter, the pyloric sphincter, many people would have heard of a, um, a, a like a, 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 you can get the, an ulcer in around the pylorus. Um, you could also get a, um, a, a hernia in the pylorus as well. Normally hernias exist in the esophageal sphincter, not in the, uh, pyloric in the duodenum sort of area, but things can happen there. So ideally, you would have enough hydrochloric acid in the stomach that would digest the bulk of your food into smaller particles in about 90 minutes so that by the time it's excreted and extruded into your small intestine, it's pretty mushy. It's very wet and very coated. And um, and very well digested. So you don't really want to put into the small intestine undigested food. You want to have had it break down as much as you possibly can. Hence the reason why 
there's hydrochloric acid in the stomach. And that's why chewing is so important, is it not? That's why chewing, that's why yeah. chewing is so important. And you are the slowest eater on the eater planet. Going around. You taught yeah, me, yeah. man. You taught me how to do this. I listened yeah. to your talks. I heard you do the power of food multiple times. It's Yeah. Well, yeah. the chewing of the food, the letting it sit in the gut for 90 minutes uh, is really important. So in that 90-minute period, if you start to burp after you've had your meal, the likelihood of you having low acid is very, very high. So generally, you've got low acid levels in the gut if you're burping after a meal. So, or even, you know, so you've eaten your meal and we're talking, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes later and you're starting to burp, even 10 minutes later, you're starting to burp, you've got low acid levels in your gut or you've funneled so much food into your gut that it just can't get coated with hydrochloric acid. And as a result, that feeling of fullness um, becomes a little bit overwhelming, can make you feel quite nauseous. Some people will vomit as a result of that. Other people will just like make sure it all goes down, but there'll be bloating and constipation to pay for the next day. So we spoke about the upper gut. We're into the middle gut. Some of the symptoms around this middle gut could be FODMAPs, could be parasites, could be um, SIBO. Can you talk to that in terms of that level of inflammation or, or parasites, not so much inflammation, it's a, uh, what do you call it? It's a... um infestation an infestation can you talk to because again i'm just thinking people are going to be going oh okay like it's starting to join the dots for people can you talk about how this manifests yeah totally so when the food so if you think about what a parasite actually is a parasite is a organism that can only live in a particular environment so it's parasitic so it takes from you whatever it needs so even your beneficial bacteria could be a parasite if your if the integrity of the gastrointestinal system is compromised. So a beneficial bacteria, like let's say for example Lactobacillus, I don't know, Rhamnosus, LGG, like it's a, it's a it's a probiotic that I talk about all the time to help people with allergies and sensitivities, hay fever, asthma, all that sort of thing. So um, that's a what we call a commensal bacteria. It's a bacteria that's supposed to be in your gut. That can be problematic if the integrity of your gut is bad. So some people take lots and lots of probiotics, the same type over and over again, and you can actually create an overgrowth of the wrong of good bacteria. So you can have too much of a good thing, in other words. So that's that's what a parasitic infection would be. It's when something comes in from the outside and it thrives on its host. So classic parasite could be a virus, for example. Like it lives inside you to achieve its goal of transmitting its DNA into your cells so that you manufacture more of it, your cells manufacture more of it, um, and then it continues to perpetuate. So and then it's up to your immune system to kind of get on top of that. That's a parasitic infection, but from a virus. Then there's bacterial, and then there's all these other types of things like worms, helminths, um, and, and and we won't go into all of them, but you know, some people might have heard of Helicobacter pylori, for example, which causes the um, ulceration of the pylorus. Um, we we also hear about um, the oh, what are the other the other parasites that we, that we talk about? Oh my gosh, I've I've, I've forgotten what they're called. Um, but we hear about these parasites and we think, oh, my gosh, I've got this this parasite. And you just have to keep in mind that a parasite only exists and only lives because the environment suits it. 
So I think, and I want to kind of leave that little discussion there on pause just for now because we'll come back to it. But because parasite or parasitic infections, for the most part, occur in the middle part of the gut. Now we do get parasitic infections like worms in the in the large colon in the, in the colon in the large intestine, but the, most of our parasitic infections occur in the mid gut. Um, so, so we've spoken. So that's it. So there's the upper gut, there's the middle gut where it, it, it feels like yeah, parasites are prevalent and it could be, again, it could be FODMAPs issues. It could be uh, potentially IBS, which could also be the lower gut, which we'll get to in a moment. could be SIBO. Yep. In the lower gut, which is, uh, as you were just saying, the large intestine, worms, I still don't know what the difference are between worms and parasites, but worms, malabsorption, constipation, flatulence, polyps, potentially even colon cancer. I mean, this is where I feel like, um, I w- I, again, socially I would say the upper gut and the lower gut is where a lot of more conversational gut health issues are, yeah. are had. So um, you, 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 mate, sure. you, you know if your mates have flatulence, or your child will tell you if they're constipated or you know if there's some burping or indigestion happening. The middle gut issues feels like it's like the messy middle metaphorically. It's like it's a bit more convoluted, complicated. Um, but well, there's kind of bloating, gut- so, but people feel bloating. So they've eaten a meal and then, you know, a couple of hours later, they're now in pain, distension, they're mm. uncomfortable. This could last for hours, you know, so the middle gut, um, food stays in that area for, oh, you know, up to eight, eight to ten hours, twelve hours. You know, food can yeah, stay in there for quite time. some time, a long, a long time. time. Yeah. And so it's in that area where the enzymes from the pancreas kind of kick in to help digest your protein, fats, and carbohydrates, and bile comes in to help you know break down your fats. And fats are so important; the body requires them. So you get a lot of attention to try and break them down. Mm. Um, and so your body will break down everything into its smallest component, and the absorption, ninety something percent of all of your absorption of all of your nutrients occurs in the middle gut so it's all it's just so important the middle gut and your food needs to be digested and it it needs adequate time and and adequate preparation so So, then yeah sorry can i I really interrupt because now you've got my curiosity peaked here does that (laughs) mean that 90 percent of if 90 percent of absorption happens in the middle gut the yeah. lower gut symptoms, malabsorption, constipation, flatulence, like some sound like polyps, some sound worse than others, but it feels like, based on what you're saying, they're clues of how that 90% of absorption went. Like mm-hmm. if you've got malabsorption issues, you know that 90% of absorption process ended in failure. Yes. Um, constipation, it's almost like potentially the opposite. It's just rock hard and you just can't do anything and it's just stuck but in terms of that lower gut is the lower gut the last warning sign of what's happened you know above it so to speak the middle gut and the upper gut like is that um yeah i mean that's i mean just as again i'm, I'm curious as to the prevalence of those signals yeah, yeah yeah it's kind of the last bastion like you know your body's going to try and do what it possibly can um but the the main function of the colon is to absorb water. So it's to try and get as much water out of the remaining food um, that you've been sending through your body. It's, it tries to take as much water out as it possibly can. 
So right. that's what it is. And so you're left with an amount that's hydrating enough that it should be easy enough to pass your bowels. But a lot of people have too much water in their stool, and so it's loose. Um, some people um, have too much bile in their stool, and so it's purulent and burning and smelly, you know. And some and other people don't have enough, and in which case it's white and pale, and you know, not you know, not going very very well. Some people don't digest their fats, in which case the poo actually floats. You know, and so that can be a really big, you know, significant issue. Poo can float as well because of gas, but a sticky poo, sticky, not stinky, sticky, um, that's floating is usually because there's undigested oil. And, you know, so oil floats, right? So um, it, there's all these different clues that we get from our large intestine because it's visual. Like we see the result of how digestion went. And so people who have listened to my Power of Food talk before would understand that I talk about the sesame seed challenge and the corn challenge. And so You stole my thunder because this is how we have to conclude this episode because I'm (laughs) looking at the time going, we're going to sit here for three hours talking about this. But when you're talking here, I'm going, okay, there's only one way to wrap up this conversation because we've spoken about small, lower gut, mid gut, upper gut, stomachs, esophagus, duodenums, the parasites, the cecum, the malabsorption, everything. (laughs) The only way to get any clarity for the listener, well, not the only way, one of the easiest ways is to take your sesame seed challenge. Can you explain to people what the sesame seed challenge is and what to do once they've done it? Yeah, all right. So the sesame seed challenge is a test to see your transit time and what we understand with transit time is that whatever passes past your lips um, should essentially come out the other end and the and the bulk of it will have been um, absorbed for whatever the body requires. So let's say, for example, you had a kilo worth of food, you're probably going to do, I don't know, let's say it's 500 grams of poo. So like a fair <laughs> bit of it is going to be absorbed like through the day, like like a lot of it, right? And most of that's going to be water and some of that will be nutrition, part of it will be protein, like up to 30% of the food you eat will be protein. You know, somewhere along the line, probably about 70% of it's going to be water. So that's all going to get absorbed. And then there's components that are carbohydrate, and then there's a fiber component of carbohydrate which doesn't get absorbed, that gets eliminated. There's a component which is maybe somewhere between 10 and 30%, which is going to be fat, that's going to be absorbed as well. But the bulk of it should actually be eliminated. So when we do a sesame seed challenge or a corn challenge, we're looking to eat something or consume something that's very difficult for our body to break down so that we can see it when it comes out the other end. And so we're talking with sesame seeds, you take a teaspoon of sesame seeds, you put it into a glass of water and you drink it and you should then see, <laughs> like a summer log, you should then see uh, <laughs> a, you should see sesame seeds come out after 12 to 24 hours and that will be appropriate, good functioning transit time of the gastrointestinal system. So 12 to 24 hours. If you wear glasses, particularly when you go to the bathroom, PC, uh, <laughs> it's, impor- it's, it's important that you use something or you eat something, consume something that's easier to see, uh, and that will be corn, right? So unless you're Mexican, you can't digest the outer casing of corn. Uh, that's a fact. That is true. Um, Mexicans have the ability to di- digest the outer casing of corn, and there could be some other um, nationalities around too that can digest the outer casing of corn. But if you're 
Pretty stock standard European. You're not going to be able to get through that out of casing of corn. If you wear glasses, it's just easier to see. So you get a dessert spoon of corn, put that into a glass of water, and you drink that down. So you're not meant to chew it, just drink it, and then you should start your your stopwatch, ask Siri to time you, and then um, you'll, you'll know when that comes out. 12 to 24 hours is what you want. Now, some people will come out quicker than that, and that's where there's malabsorption. Okay, so if your transit time is too quick, then you've got malabsorption. You're not absorbing the nutrition that your body requires. You're not digesting it properly, and so then it's moved out quickly. And it's if a it lower takes a gut lo- issue, folks. That's a lower. Well, that's gut. a middle. That's a middle to lower gut issue. Okay, middle to lower gut. Uh, but you know that could actually also start in the upper gut, in that you might mm. be insufficient in hydrochloric acid, right? So it's all—it's not easy just to go. Oh, that's that, you know. That's why I'm not the health professional. Don't take my labels. It's not the label. <laughs> it could be the middle, it could be upper, middle, or lower gut. Yeah. If you're slow, if you're tardy, if you don't see those sesame seeds or corn come out 48 hours down the track or 72 hours down the track. There's a couple of things that could have happened. One, they might still be in there, and two, you might have just missed it. So you might you might just do it again. But the point the point being is that you shouldn't be seeing them some 72 hours later. If you're seeing it that long down the track, then there's constipation, and that in itself, um, you know, comes with problems. You know, there's the higher risk of gastrointestinal um, issues like polyps, um, hemorrhoids. And so on and so forth, but that's my, it's most likely not going to be a malabsorption issue, but it does cause um, distension, bloating, pain, and uh, and it's not a great not a great place to be. This is this is incredibly informative. Uh, take the sesame seed challenge to really take action on this episode of the laws of wellness. This has been incredible, Damo. Again, I know everyone listening would be like, "We want more." We want more. I think for now, do the Sesame Seed Challenge. Go to DamienChristoph.com. Damo, where else would you recommend people go if they want more information on gut health clarity? We'll pop a few links in the in the show notes here. But is there any is there anything else I would say go down to Vita Lifestyles? Of course I would say that. But is there any is there anything else that you would recommend for people before we wrap up uh, this episode? Well, our great friend um, Kyle Brock made a movie uh, called The Gut Movie, which I was mm. part of, and it's a great investigation into the health of the gut and how you can actually do great things with the gut. I think you can watch that on you know Vimeo or YouTube or something. I think Kyle's got that up there. So yeah. you definitely go have a look at that one. Another great um, movie that was done by another great friend of ours, Cindy O'Meara, is What's With Wheat. That's a really interesting kind of look at wheat albeit it really demonizes wheat um, and makes it seem really, really bad and anybody who eats it's going to die. That's probably not the case, <laughs> but there's some really great information in there and Cindy did a great job with that movie. Um, yeah. So, it's, you know, definitely that's worth considering. There are a lot of gut health gurus out there um, and, you know, I'd encourage people just to kind of look around and see whether or not they're appropriately credentialed and, to be honest with you, um, without sounding disparaging to any other nationality, probably some of the best trained gastrointestinal health professionals come out of Australia, to be honest mm. with you. Uh, locally locally made gut locally health heroes. Sourced. Well done. Well done. This has been a cracking episode of The Laws of Wellness. As always, Damo, thank you so much for your wisdom on this episode. <laughs> you're welcome. I thought you were going to keep on going. Keep on going, PC. No, uh, you're most welcome, mate. And uh, and I, I love talking poo and gastrointestinal health. You know that. So uh, <laughs> thanks for thanks for letting me talk about it. 
And to everyone who's been listening to this episode of The Laws of Wellness, make sure you share it with a friend and family member. Apply the lessons of this episode. Perhaps go back and listen to it again. And of course, do the Sesame Seed Challenge. Until next time, thanks for joining us on The Laws of Wellness and continue to make the rest of your life the best of your life. Bye for now.